On today's episode, we have Andrew Goldner, a veteran in the tech space and founding partner of GrowthX. Andrew has been in the technology sector since 1998, where he began his career in tech as a lawyer for the early internet pioneers, such as AltaVista, Yahoo, Salesforce, and many others. He left private practice and then became a publisher for Reuters News before becoming the co-founder and managing director of the company's legal media business for Asia and the Middle East. Returning from six years in Asia, Andrew decided to move back to the U.S. in order to help early-stage companies. He was early at two different SaaS companies, GuideSpark and BrightTalk, before co-founding Good Money to democratize high-performance, value-based investing. At Good Money, Andrew met his current partners and co-founded GrowthX, which helps companies and countries to commercialize innovation through capital, talent, and know-how. Stay tuned for more from Andrew Goldner of GrowthX. Welcome to Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in studio, my old friend, Andrew, what's going on? Hey, man. It's so good to be here across the table from you, not just hearing your voice digitally. I know, right? Yeah. Andrew, as as our audience knows by now, is the co-founder of GrowthX and uh, business partners with Sean Shepard, who we've had on the podcast before. I have my GrowthX t-shirt on today because uh, I'm a proud mentor uh, of GrowthX Academy. Um, but we're going to be diving into definitely some GrowthX stuff. But first, we're going to do a little bit of your background. Uh, I want to talk about how you think about startups. You invest in startups for a living. And some of the pieces of advice that you gave me early in my career um, are things that you know we talk about all the time at Mission. So we'll talk through some of that stuff. But first, when were you like the first inklings, the first startings of inklings that you knew that technology was going to be something you were excited about? 1997 professionally, but I've been interested in technology and I'm going to date myself here a little bit for your listeners. Um, I'm going to say that my real curiosity around technology started in roughly 1984 when my brother was running a bulletin board out of our basement in Cleveland, Ohio. We had a 5700 baud modem. We had one of the first IBM PCs. Um, And I remember going down to the basement and there were conversations happening on the screen. And being a little brother, I couldn't resist having a little fun with it. And so I jumped in on the keyboard and just started adding some pretty big nonsense to it. And I remember that night, my brother was like really super pissed at me. Um, but, you know, it started the conversation about, you know, what he was doing and what this thing was. Um, I remember in 1983, I was going to be bar mitzvahed. And as a surprise, my brother created a grid that he overlaid on top of a photo of mine and by simply labeling the whole grid based on whether there was a light or dark spot on the photo a one or a zero and then wrote a program in basic and printed on our Epson dot matrix printer a picture of me and it was the picture 
that he had laid this grid on top of and just put ones and zeros for light and dark. And it was a serious representation of that picture. And that just blew me away. And so that started my fascination. My, my brother went on to do all sorts of amazing things around information technology, um, including being one of the first at Procter & Gamble to do what became known as interactive marketing. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Lewis has been in technology. I mean, he was very early at Excite. Um, he was with Match Logic, one of the first interactive advertisers out in Boulder when they got purchased by Excite. Yeah. Things kind of went sideways when it became Excite at home. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's the one that taught me what it was. He's the reason that we had it in the house. He was interested in it, you know, one of the early, early, early people. And so when I graduated law school. Oh, man, you stole my thunder. Oh, were you going to? I was going to tee it up. Tee it up. All right. I, I'll yeah, tee I was, it up. Well, I was going to say no. You were going to make a joke about yeah. me being a lawyer. Yeah, I was. I'm sure I was going to say, you know, and all that excitement brought you to, <laughs> to the law. The law. <laughs> saying, you know, I love technology so much that I'm going to become a, a lawyer. lawyer. Well, so I just for the audience, it's important to know now that I'm a recovering lawyer. I'm on step five. I'm apologizing to all my former clients. <laughs> I'm on my way. I haven't practiced law um, for a long, long time, over a decade. But flash forward through being interested in politics, being interested in civic organizations, getting a degree in finance, um, wanting to go to law school because I believed in advocacy. And this was, I think, a time very different than today where there was a more rational discourse. And I I was betting that I was going to make a positive impact on the earth by, you know, working myself into elected office. And so for me, law school is a natural course on that. I came out of law school not really sure what I wanted to do um, other than return back to Ohio where I grew up and find the right firm that could put me in the best position to run for my first office. Well, it would be actually my second office. I actually ran for Cincinnati City Council when I was still in college. No kidding. Uh, but I found that it impacted uh, my studying. <laughs> but in any case, when I graduated law school in 98, um, this was obviously a time when the internet was first commercializing. And I discovered that I was able to have an outsized impact on my career and the firm I was working at by leveraging the fact that I knew how the internet worked when just about every partner at this big firm, some of the top practitioners in the world, did not know how the internet worked. And the challenges that that was creating that were yet unknown provided an opportunity for me to step in and start creating a brand for myself, even though I was only a first year lawyer and really had no idea how to practice law, especially as a corporate lawyer, because law school does not prepare you for that. Um, I was actually having a lot of fun and having an impact for my clients beyond just the grunt work of a first year associate because I proactively got in front of issues and helped them. For instance, one of the biggest clients at the firm was violating the securities laws. And they had no idea uh, because they had stale information up on their website in press release that was old information. And they would have never made that mistake on paper. They just weren't thinking of the internet that way. And of course, the SEC laws hadn't adapted to the internet yet. And so this was really interesting time. 
And so I, I from that point, focused 100% of my practice on technology. Um, I was recruited into a very, very big New York City corporate firm called Skadden Arps, and it was early in joining what was then called the, I think it was telecommunications, technology, internet, and e-commerce transactions practice group or oh, something like that. Because if you think about it, it was broadband. It was, you know, the beginning of set-top box, ITV, interactive television, internet, television. One of the clients of the firm that I was fortunate to work with was the um, International Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. So we actually established the rules of the internet and created the the .com and .net domain name system. That's crazy. Um, which was extraordinary. And again, I was a junior associate and was only around the fringes to what the what the what the, the fringes to what the partners were doing. But I was certainly there and participating and 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 learning. And so that was me. That was the practice of law for me. Um, it was 100% technology and it was transactional. So I did uh, licensing. I did corporate finance. I did M and A. Um, and it was extraordinarily time to do that. And, and by the way, you know, my clients were Mark Benioff and Salesforce when he founded it in 99, Yahoo, uh, early days, uh, Priceline, um, you know, all of the other, other famous names like Boo.com, which you might remember, Socks.com, Pets.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you were Pets.com? Pets.com. Oh, we represented goodness. Pets.com. How crazy yeah. is Chewy's valuation? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Isn't, it's got to be. I mean, I saw someone post about this the other day. There's no bad, uh, I think it's Andrew Chen. was like, there's no bad uh, ideas. There's just bad timing, right? I mean, that's got to be crazy, right? To see. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have enough detail to really get into it and question the, the valuation of it. But I will say that, you know, very smart companies are putting a lot of money behind it because more people are moving up Maslow's hierarchy um, and are more able to incorporate um, the privilege of existence when you're higher in my, on the hierarchy of needs, which includes having an animal and being able to afford to feed them and house them and take care of them. Um, and so I think there's actually a more of a demand and the, the marketplace is actually increasing quite dramatically. So you take a look at Mars um, Pet Care and mm-hmm. the Companion Fund, a $100 million fund based exclusively on um, pet-related uh, capital. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I, like I said, I don't know enough to comment on the valuation of Chewy, but I do think there's an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money to be made in that space. Well, and I just think it's interesting that like, you know, one of the examples of failure of the dot com is one of the things that everyone always talked about was kind of this, like, well, every, every single person was pitching that, you know, if a hundred million Americans have dogs and that dogs eat twice a day and you know, all this sort of stuff, then this is the size of the industry. And then it kind of cratered. But then you look at it now with like direct to consumer businesses and you're like, well, it turns out if you have a really well run direct to consumer business and you have technology and, and the access to internet and inexpensive to free broadband um and shipping exactly that's exactly right and so i think a lot of what was being talked about back then was nonsense and it would listen anytime you have a wild west new economy you're going to see a variety of characters um and one of the characters is the snake oil salesman yeah you're going to see the sheriff 
you're going to see the proverbial pickaxe salespeople mm-hmm. as opposed to those that are digging for the gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when you look at uh, Bitcoin, you've seen the rise of the snake oil salesperson. You've seen uh, the 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 money that stakes the claim. Mm-hmm. You've seen those that are out there and they're even picking up the terminology doing the mining um, and so I do think there was a lot of snake oil salesmen in the 90s, but I think a lot of those people were also correct and prognosticating and just early. Well, and I think that that's like one of those, you know, good idea things. It's an, it's about execution. I mean, you know, your your partner, Will Bunker, always talks mm-hmm. about like, mm-hmm. you know, how many people were working on dating sites? Ours was just the one that was doing the best, right? And Will's amazing. He's got so many great witticisms and just wisdom. But one of my favorites is, when he was initially pitching for what would become Match.com, what was started out as one and only.com, people were physically like walking away from him, like yeah, yep. like physically moving themselves away from him because of what he was pitching. Yeah. So yeah, a dramatically, dramatically different time. His envelope math, similar to the dog envelope math, was the same. It was like, you know, Half of the internet is in, I, I don't know the exact off the mm-hmm. top of my head, but it's like half of the internet is in chat rooms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 70% of what people are doing in chat rooms is trying to get a date. Therefore, this thing called a dating website is going to become very big. It's the same type of envelope, you know, math that a lot of people do for like total addressable market. Yeah. Um, when a lot of the times we have no idea what the total addressable market is. You know, you take someone like a salesforce.com when you were working with them in 1999, I don't know what you know, they were talking about with the total addressable market, but, you know, I, I would assume that, uh, you know, in his wildest dreams, he didn't think that they were going to be in every single vertical that they're in now. No question. And and so much of the growth now is through the acquisition. And I, and I, and I think we're seeing that play out. But yeah, I mean, I remember the early days, you know, at Salesforce. I mean, I was on the outside as a lawyer, and this was probably around 2000, but I remember it clear as day. Um, and a, a dear friend of mine and, a, and a, one of my former co-founders, Christian Myers, we met each other because he was one of the first biz dev hires at Salesforce and he was on the inside and just learning from him and hearing the stories from him. And I, I clearly remember the, the, the word software with the circle and the line through it. Um, and this notion that corporations were going to give up off premise. I mean, it was for me at the time, too hard to believe. I didn't have the vision to believe it, and I didn't see it lasting. I I, I had an opportunity to to join as a lawyer at Salesforce back then, and I passed. <laughs> no really? Um, so yeah, it's definitely on a list of things that I should have done. But I think one of the reasons that I made that decision um, was I I just couldn't see it. Yeah, I, I just didn't have that vision. Um, that they had, uh, that Mark and Christian and others had. And maybe some of it was because I wasn't ensconced at the time in the Valley. I was in New York City and I had a different frame of mind. Well, you, you know, I'd say everything sure worked out. But, you know, one of the decisions that you made shortly after that was joining DoubleClick. Can you kind of share what, what the reason, you know, did you want to be an operator? Did you want to leave uh, the practice and, and be in a startup? Like, how did that come about? It was actually more nonlinear than that. I had already left the practice of law um, and got into the restaurant business. That old, that old lucrative puppy. Oh God, yeah, um, yeah. Th- I don't know if this is entirely an off-balance sheet, but very few people know this about me. That yeah, I I left my practice 
at Skadden to get into the restaurant business. Um, I was, I had, um, I think, taken everything I could have taken um, from the opportunity working at Skadden. And also I think got, started hitting the limits of what I was able to offer. And it was certainly a combination of both those things that I was looking to get out. Um, I was not someone who wanted to become a partner at a firm. It became quickly obvious to me that any model that's premised on time spent, not value added, is not going to be a long-term opportunity for me. Um, but I do uh, I do uh, remain very grateful for that opportunity. I worked with some of the best people, the best practitioners. I learned a tremendous amount. But I was looking to get out, um, and I had been taking calls from a lot of different folks. Um, but you know, you get your golden handcuffs on, you build a lifestyle around it, and opportunities come along that you can't afford to take. And that I passed on a lot of different things that might have turned out differently because I just didn't want to give up my lifestyle at the time. And when I met someone um, who when I you liked say lifestyle, and, are you just talking like? Because lawyers Living make a lot of money. Yeah, and lawyers make a lot of money. I mean, relative, right? You know, yeah. at the time and relative to what I thought I was going to make, right? And relative to most people, um, lawyers, especially at large firms in, in New York City, I mean, you, they exact the toll out of you. You work very hard, but you yep. get paid handsomely. And what did I do with that money? I had a great apartment in New York City and I took really great vacations and I ate at great restaurants and I grew accustomed to doing that. Um, and it grew up in all grew up in Ohio and Cleveland and then got accustomed to a very different lifestyle and just made shorter term decisions than I may have should have made at the time uh, based on immaturity. Um, but when I met someone who, you know, was doing some interesting things with a restaurant and we started building a relationship um, and I thought that I really could help him from an operations perspective. Um, and, and I was excited to learn something new and I was excited to do something 180 degrees. It was the thing that got me to finally jump off the high dive. And so I gave my notice and went into the restaurant business and had one restaurant, two restaurant, three restaurants, zero restaurants <laughs> um, in New York City. Um, they were all seafood. Uh, my partner had a fleet of commercial fishing vessels based up in Nova Scotia. And we took that narrative and the best fish and put it in our own restaurant. Um, he was a market maker at Halibut in the Fulton Fish Market. Oh, nice. The best chefs in New York City bought fish from Eric um, and early morning seafood. And so we vertically integrated, uh, had a high-end destination restaurant uh, in Tribeca and then expanded from there. I learned a lot, but you know, we made some serious mistakes and you know, don't need to go into the details, but ended up one, two, three, zero. And so I thought, okay, well, what do I want to do now? And I thought, well, you know, I do love business, but I, there are parts about being a lawyer that I did love if I could combine them. And it was about that time I had got a call from a headhunter uh, with an opportunity to join DoubleClick. And I thought, well, this is perfect. Um, you know, I, I, I broke the golden handcuffs. Um, I moved out of the expensive apartment in Chelsea down to Battery Park City. <laughs> um, I downsized my entire life and God bless my wife who was along the ride with me. And so now I was in a position to look at something. Otherwise, I, I really didn't have the foresight or the maturity to look at before. And really, that's how I got into DoubleClick. I, I, it wasn't, I mean, yes, of course, I knew DoubleClick. And I, I mean, I had worked with DoubleClick and 24-7 Media back in the late 90s when I was building a digital media company with a client at the firm down in Orlando, Florida. 
Um, and I certainly knew DoubleClick through my brother Lewis because of what he was doing with advertising at Procter & Gamble. But, you know, I, I hadn't really thought much more about it. It's not like I had prognosticated about what the future for DoubleClick looked like and that someone like a Google would buy them. I, I, I could never claim that. Um, but it felt like the great mix of things and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed being a business lawyer to salespeople. And that's what I did at, at, at DoubleClick. I started out as kind of a, a deputy general counsel, you know, a little bit on the technology side because of my background, but mostly helping salespeople get deals done and yeah. building um, a, a, you know, more legal wellness into the business um, and being an advisor and not just a lawyer. Um, I love the legal wellness. Is that a term? Because that is I made great. that term up. Did you? That's that my term. Freaking great. Well, we, you know, we when we had um, our GC at uh, at Mission, that was we were you. You got to do. You have to make those investments in the super early days. In my opinion, it's uh, about behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it's just about early behaviors. It has its place in 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 medical and human right and health versus wellness. And, and the situation that we're in today is a country where, you know, people go to the doctor because they're sick. There is no wellness philosophy here. And so the idea is if you build behaviors early, as early as you can, it all, ultimately it just means higher valuation and value later. Because as the lawyer who was in the windowless conference rooms, going through bankers boxes, putting a pile together of bad facts, and the higher that pile of paper was, the lower your valuation was because there more risk there was. And then it just becomes an allocation of risk. And so even though it's a super boring subject and one that most people have a lot of preconceived notions about, legal awareness and good behaviors and what I refer to as wellness is very, very important. And the earlier you get on that, the easier it is, and it just becomes part of the, the 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 operating the standard operating procedure of your enterprise. Yeah, when we had uh, we had Mark Craney in here. The oh other yeah, day. Mark's amazing. Yeah, Mark's amazing. And one of the things um, I had heard him talk about on a on a different podcast was essentially this idea that like if you're a startup and you're going to go into a, a deal with a big company, and they have like their legal team and they're he's like you can't exactly expect them to sign your statement of work. Right. Like they're, they're not just going to walk in and accept your, uh, your TNCs. Right. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, and they're going to expect you to sign theirs. But you know, I, what I will tell you is when I really started loving practicing law, it has so much to do with everything that we do today with helping innovators understand market development. Because mm -hmm. for me, it was all about customer centricity. Mm -hmm. It was all about understanding and creating wins. You know, my first day of law school, my first class, first day, first 10 minutes, my property instructor stood up in front of the class and said this, I'm gonna teach you a lesson right now and you're not gonna understand it and you won't for many years, but you are all in this room at some point gonna be faced with a question to decide about how you wanna practice. Are you going to be a deal maker or a deal breaker? And that's going to change everything. And I learned early on that I am a deal maker. I love that. And so when I was doing deals, I would encourage the salesperson, no, put down the, the, the keyboard, put down the phone. Let's get on a plane. And yes, it's going to cost us a little money and time. Let's go and meet those people in their hometowns. Let's get there the night before. Let's take them out to dinner. 
Let's start building relationships with them, human interaction, because we're going to build up political points from that. So the next day when I am negotiating with the lawyer, I can be more casual. I can be more human, right? Let's not sit across the table from them. Let's sit on the same side of the table. Let's start out every negotiation that I ever went into from that point forward. The first thing that I did is say, listen, everybody, we are super excited to be here. We are going to get a deal done together. We have details to work through, but like if there's a meeting of the minds, details are just that. But what we want you to know that from this side of the table, we're on your side of the table and we're looking forward to getting something done. And keeping in mind that um, a couple of things. One, you know, that person opposite me has a job and a boss. And so what good does it do me to belittle them and try to win every single point where there are opportunities to let them shine, you know, let them shine. And the other thing is like, and this is really important to the the, 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 the way we think about sales. You know, so many lawyers, unfortunately, get caught in the language of the document. Yes. But that's irrelevant. That's like the features and functions of the product, right? Let's take a step back. Let's talk about what are you trying to accomplish with this provision? What, what are you worried about happening? Don't worry about the language. Help me understand what you're worried about. And if I can get you to the same place, but differently, is that okay? Right? Those things have played out in my career um, to this day. The other thing I will say is, just in terms of the practice of law, and then kind of get back to double click. It's very easy when you're having a conversation and negotiating or just talking to, about things with your co-founders to feel like and to satisfy yourself as having thought through something A to Z. When the reality is you've probably only thought through it A to G. If you're great, maybe A to N. By being the person forced to negotiate 12, 13 hours a day and then when everybody else went out to dinner, I had to go back to my billing station and sit down and memorialize that conversation and reduce from soft copy in my head to hard copy on paper. I realized that where everybody else saw a period, I see a comma. Mm -hmm. Because something about that process, and I talk to founders about this all the time, don't put together a pitch deck for venture capitalists. You put together a narrative for yourself and your team to satisfy yourselves that you can believe in what you're doing and you see that there's a logical path from A to Z to accomplish what you're setting out to do. And then just go hire a visual designer, put, put, put some design on top of the narrative and there's your pitch deck. But you do it first for yourself. Same thing was with your, your business model. You're not doing that for me. And I don't yep. care if you are a seed stage or a pre-seed stage company, you still need a business model because if you don't think that your time is valuable enough to take the time to envision whether this can become something and the narrative that comes out of that and the forced A to Z thinking of putting the narrative together or building a financial model, to me, that's already a sign of a relatively weak founder. I do want to put some emphasis on that because um you know what what you were talking about is what I call it is you got to love them first and you have to go into every sales meeting 
in every meeting with, with with anyone where you're trying to sell them on something or to negotiate, you know, the uh, a future your your combined future together, um, and you have to love them first, and you have to you know do your homework and figure out like why you love them, right? Like if you were gonna go convince, if I was gonna go convince someone like, hey, you know, Andrew's my mentor, you would love to have him as a mentor. Here's the like ten reasons why he would be a great mentor for you. Um, you have to kind of do that with yourself when you go into these meetings. Like you have to know why you love them as a customer. Like, and it can't just be because they're going to sign a contract because that, you know, that contract or that business relationship will suck if you don't have a reason why you want to partner with them beyond just the money. And I think that a lot of people, uh, whether it's salespeople or startups or, you know, in hires or whatever it is, um, they just, they're looking for, you know, right now instead of right and you have to be able to be, uh, you know, willing to go into that. And the, at the end of the day, the person who wins the negotiation always, 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 always is the most prepared. Like there's no, there's no scenario where you're less prepared. You walk into a negotiation and you win. Because if you don't know like all of the concessions that you could possibly make on this earth, all of the value that you could create, you know, for them, if you don't have like, like you said, you probably have done like A to F. Um, if you don't really know the order in which you concede things as it relates to what is valuable to them versus valuable to you, like there's no way you're going to win. And I, listen, I think that you, you bring up a lot of good points. Um, I, there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, a core value of mine and, and certainly one that I think we all share at GrowthX is about congruity. Our only objective is to live um, congruously with our world. And that includes the planet itself, every person that populates that planet, and every other creature that's on it, not living violently, seeking long-term, healthy, sustainable relationships. And that comes from being transparent, being transparent and seeking fit. And so, and, and the other thing I will say to that is it's also about adopting a mindset of abundance. Yep, totally. And not a mindset of scarcity. Because the nouns are the nouns. We can't do anything about them. But a mindset of abundance perceives those nouns as opportunities and a mindset of scarcity perceives them as challenges. And so back to your point, if you only seek to seek fit and if you are looking to live um, in congruence, and you have confidence and a mindset of abundance, then you know that you can have your cake and eat it too. And what you're looking to do is find people that naturally fit and can begin that long-term, healthy, sustainable, nonviolent relationship. And so the person you're talking to, and whether it's a negotiation or whether it's a quote-unquote sales conversation, it's about determining whether there's a good fit. And to your point, when you are a, uh, an experiment in search of a business model, which is the definition in my book of a startup, and you have limited resources, and regardless of resources, you should be treating them as limited, um, you should be qualifying everybody for the opportunity to spend time with you. Yeah. And that's why you do that research, because you respect your time and you respect their time, um, and you want to 
work your priorities and you want them to work theirs. And when there is a natural connection between the two, then there's an opportunity. But we don't look to force fit because that's where objections come from, not from customers. Um, Really, it's the salespeople that create them. So um, I think these things are really important. And I we we advise all of our startups and anybody in our community to take the word sales and selling out of their vocabulary and replace it with help and helping. Mm -hmm. And every time you're going to use a sentence or think of a thought that includes sales or selling, almost like a a fill in the blank Mad Lib, stick in help or helping, that's right. We think that's how you build enduring value, um, which justifies the exit value that you might be looking for. Let's get back to double click. Yeah. So how big was the org when you got there? It was big. I joined DoubleClick in 2003, right? And, you know, we exited in like 2004, 2005. So it was it was pretty late. Um, we had a large operation already um, in place on 8th Avenue. Um, Google now owns that whole building. We just had offices there at the time, but that's how went through the acquisition. They got in and then end up building, buying that entire building. We had, you know, offices around the world. Um, and don't forget too, what was happening with the economy, you know, post, um, the, the initial internet bubble, you know, this was not the days where double click was just faxing insertion orders. And that's that was really what the function of salespeople were, was how quickly could you fax an insertion order because they would immediately just get signed and sent back. Um, we were, um, you know, the internet uh, advertising technology um, was becoming more complex. Um, there was more competition. It had begun to commoditize. It was that stage of a company where a different sets of talent became required because of the stage of the company as very different from the earlier stages of the company. Um, and so there were changes in leadership um, in order to um, give effect to a new and very unique and different stage of a company. Um, and that's when David Rosenblatt took over from Kevin. I don't think at the time any of us thought we were late because none of us saw the, the horizon um, but in retrospect, it was, it was pretty late. I mean, it, it, in many ways still felt like a startup, but it was a growth stage startup. What was, so what was it like when you found out that there was like a potential that you were going to get acquired? I mean, at first it was pretty exciting. Although, I mean, secretly, right. Not to be shared with, you know, any of my colleagues at the time, I was kind of bummed out because I kind of liked what was happening. And I, I, had, I found like I really had felt, found my sweet spot. I, I think I was a very, very effective lawyer there. Um, and I had built some really great friendships with the salespeople that I was working with and was enjoying it. And so I just didn't want anybody to move my cheese. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, that was my reaction. Um, you know, as time went on, you know, my estimation was that for right or wrong, um, Google was at that time um, an entirely engineer-driven culture, and I had two strikes against me. I was non-technical and a lawyer. I just didn't know what a future would look like 
obviously, again, it's not as if I had a crystal ball. Yeah, totally. Or frankly, even the the deep perspective to be able to even, you know, educated guess what the future of Google is going to be. I just, I didn't have it. And so as much as I thought about it and tried to contemplate it, it's not like I, I could have, I could have of Babe Ruth, you know, where they are today or even any close approximation to it. And I don't know, maybe that would have changed my mind, maybe not. But I guess the third strike against me was that I was in New York. So it's a, oh, it's a Silicon Valley company. I'm in New York. I'm in an acquisition. Um, I am a cost center, not a profit center. I'm non-technical. I'm a lawyer, right? So I just... Um, I just said, you know what? Let me let me uh, let me just see what else is out there, um, bef- just to try to start weighing options. And I got a hold of the headhunter that placed me at DoubleClick, um, who is amazing. She's still at EP Dine, Colleen. She's an incredible, incredible legal headhunter. And um, you know, we went through a lot of different things, and then she sent me something um, for the Thompson family. I was like, wow, this is really interesting and listen i you know i suffer from entrepreneurism and so uh you know shiny object syndrome um and so something completely different um uh, a very interesting narrative getting to know a very dynamic general counsel deirdre stanley a super super interesting dynamic person who frankly, um, was the reason I ended up going to work there because I just, I, I really, um, was impressed with Deirdre and, and, and just wanted to learn from her, even though I might not, you know, directly be around her every day. Um, I wanted to learn from her and I believed her when she talked about what was happening at the Thompsons as they began to, um, shift away from just simply holding companies like we hold stocks to operating them in a way that took advantage of synergies. Um, when I joined, and this was part of Deirdre's vision that she executed on quite successfully, when when I joined the Thompson family, the, the, the operating units had no lawyers. It was only the home office in Connecticut because they were just doing M&A. So there, there was nobody doing deals inside of the operating units. And so her idea was to strategically put lawyers in the different operating units. And I got dropped into Thompson Financial because of my background again. I had experience doing sophisticated transactions. And part of my interest in the role was that. Like I love DoubleClick. It's what I called retail law. It was very simple in terms of the experiences that I had had. And I thoroughly enjoyed that and would have continued to enjoy it and there was also a real uh, interest to go back to large, sophisticated transactions and the complexity. Um, legal uh, code is very similar to computer code. The, the, the logic behind drafting a contract is very similar to the logic behind coding. And I had been taught by the best at Skadden and actually in, learned to enjoy that. Um, probably more than I realized until I started missing it when I was at DoubleClick. So part of that was getting back into that sophisticated, logic-driven, complexity transaction. And so I started doing that at Double. And then, so that's when I ended up deciding I would do that instead. Um, and uh, joined, um, 
joined them in 2005 and proceeded to have my first daughter, Ava, and was really, really enjoying at, at Thompson and, and really feeling like we were starting to hit an interesting sweet spot as a company. Because of my background doing media deals, um, I was asked to uh, renegotiate with a business person um, a contract with Dow Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. Unlike Bloomberg, uh, Reuter, uh, Thompson uh, did not have its own news business. And so it had made a strategically interesting decision to outsource a critical part of its workflow solution to a third party. And that third party took advantage of that position. Yeah. And so when it came time to renegotiate the deal with Dow Jones, I, I could get nowhere. And every time we would go to brief the CEO, Sharon at the time, and we would get a hard time because like, what, like guys, like what's going on with Dow Jones? Like this is a crap deal. We're like, well, we didn't make the decision to outsource a strategically important part of the workflow to a third party. So we're just bearing the, the brunt of that decision. And a handful of a handful of us at the company said, well, how, how hard would it be to, to start a news business? And so um, the Thompsons were always good about speaking in the language of business and listening to whoever it is that was speaking, if they were speaking in the language of business. And so we created Thompson Financial News and I hung up my legal hat for the last time formally, um, and that was 2007, um, and we launched Thompson Financial News, and I became the VP of News Strategy and Operations, um, and just started doing what I knew how to do, which was buy things, and so we started build, buying um, little small news organizations um, to just grab their journalists um, and any 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 footprint they had, um, and then started working with governments in Eastern Europe uh, to give us permission to um, uh, be a news organization in Eastern Europe, which was interesting. And along that journey, um, we bought a company in uh, Asia um, because we we needed their um, non-Greater China financial news coverage for our customers, who are you know the largest financial institutions in the world. And so I was lucky enough to kind of be put in charge of that um, and move my family over there. Um, and and it was in the process of doing that that David Thompson, this guy and the family, recognized what we had been saying about the power of news. And so our little, you know, ragtag 100-person news organization um, went away when we acquired Reuters. Um, and that's when I got uh, posted to be publisher of Reuters News. It's so fast. A lot of great insights there, but... One of the things that's so fascinating is like that startup lesson of like outsourcing a percentage of your business that is a mission critical piece. Or building on someone else's platform. Yeah. Right? I mean, look at how many examples we have even recently here in the Valley um, when you build on Twitter or build on Facebook or YouTube. And it's like, hey, we want ad free everything all the time. And it's like, guess what? Yeah. That ain't the case. Or guess what? You need to pay to... You know, all the money that you spent to build this uh, page, you got to pay to access yep. those people now. That's right. Or we're just going to shut you off. Right. So there's a lot of lessons that I learned at Thompson Reuters. One of them, and Thompson particularly, one of them was what, what was actually called customer centricity. They called it front-end customer strategy, customer centricity. The Thompsons were in the vanguard with design thinking. They didn't use the words that come out of the D school. Mm-hmm. But that is exactly what they were saying. And that front-end customer strategy was on the vanguard of design thinking, solution agnostic, customer-centric. It's exactly how we think. And I think it's so funny because 
when you spend so much time around, you know, uh, the GrowthX team and, and a lot of the real customer centric organizations, you know, you just, you just think that way and you stop thinking about being product driven and you start thinking about being customer driven. Um, you know, one of the core values, obviously growth X is that, you know, products don't create value customers do. And in media, I mean, what would you say? 99% of media organizations don't operate that way. Well, listen, I mean, that was when, when I became publisher of Reuters news after I Googled, what does a publisher do? <laughs> um, which I, I actually did. And I grew into the role. I realized that it was about customer centricity and technology for me. Like that's how I was going to be publisher. And I was proud to be doing it in Asia because it was easier to be on the vanguard in Asia than it would have been here in the United States for a variety of reasons. We brought the voice of the customer into the newsroom. And this is a 150 plus year old, uh, you know, newswire agency, you know, that's that still was proud to claim they broke the Lincoln assassination. Jeez. You talk to the, the journalists at the time um, and, and what you would hear is features and functions We're faster. We do more of it. Right. I mean, when I was the publisher of Reuters, we published, I think about this in the context of the content you're creating. We published content that was equivalent in length to the Old and New Testament combined every day, every single day. And by the way, that content was relied on by kings and queens, mm -hmm. presidents and CEOs the world over, right? Um, and it was done with enormous professionalism, enormous professionalism. Um, but yet, the people on the edge of the news, the 3,000 journalists and around the world were thinking about product. And guess what? When you looked at their KPIs, they were all about what they called snaps, right? How many headlines? How quickly did you get that headline? How quickly did we beat the competition on telling the world that fact? We brought the voice of the customer in and help the journalists understand that and began to enable them with technology um, so that they could they could take advantage of what was happening. It was a challenge inside of a very large organization. I, I called myself an EIC, an entrepreneur in captivity. Um, but it was it was um, I'll I'll never never forget and 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 always remember the the lessons that I learned and the relationships that I formed, most especially among the journalists and the senior editorial staff at Reuters. I mean, just world-class people. Yeah, I think it's another pretty salient point that at the end of the day, you can hire all the, you want to call them journalists or engineers or product people or whatever it is, you can have the best in the world. If your business model doesn't match their talent, you're still going to go out of business. Like there's, there's no, there's no uh, silver bullet that can um, you know prevent your business model from going under if it's the wrong wrong thing for your customers mm -hmm. and if they're not getting the value from it it's like you're not or if your you know business model doesn't capture the value accurately you're just not going to survive no that's true and you know listen I mean you've had Sean on here a couple of times so you know I, I can't possibly add any more to that than he adds but it's you know it really is a problem and there really is an opportunity um, more innovators need to be thinking about the customer 
need to be thinking about the problem and need to understand that taking an innovation to market's nonlinear. And whether you're two kids in a garage about the size of what we're sitting in now or the Fortune 500, innovators are making the same mistakes globally and they're failing at a, at, at a rate that's untenable. And it's because they're focused on features and functions and not problems and people. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.